Hello and welcome to another exciting, and you guessed it, jam-packed episode of Modern Day Philosophers. I'm your host, Danny Lobel. Today my guest is the wonderful Salvador Litvak, the esteemed writer and director, um, uh, or co-writer with his wonderful wife Nina, of the cult hit classic comedy, When Do We Eat? and Saving Lincoln. He's also the curator and moderator and host of the popular Facebook page, The Accidental Talmudist, which now boasts over a million followers. It was really cool talking to him. Brilliant guy, funny guy. I can't wait for you guys to hear it. Um, I'm still in rehab working on my eating disorder. It's going well, I think. It's a lot of work, and I'll tell you all about it when it's over. But in the meantime, let's get right to the show. Wait, wait, wait. There is one thing I want to tell you. In addition to the fact that this show is not sponsored, because I'm not actively looking for sponsors, I'm working on myself, and so it's sort of like listener-supported radio over here. Go to moderndayphilosophers.net and make a donation, please. Keep it going. Uh, I do want to also tell you that my new comic book, Fair Enough 2, the second issue, is now available for purchase. That's right, go to fairenoughcomic.com and you can get the second issue. The artist, Josh Meatbag Mead, did an incredible job. He's out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, all I can tell you is I'm really proud of it and I think you're going to love it. And now, without further ado, except for the intro song, I give you my talk with the great writer and director, Sal Litvak. Enjoy. Welcome to Modern Day Philosophers. Modern Day Philosophers. Having failed to pay attention in school, Danny Lobel, now older and wiser, will attempt to learn basic philosophy 101. Our young hero will be joined by today's top comedians, philosophers all their own. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Danny Lobel. Modern Day Philosophers. I am sitting with Sal Litvak. An esteemed film writer and director, whose work I've I've really enjoyed uh, your movie uh, When Do We Eat, and I've also really enjoyed being on your show, The Accidental Talmudist. Uh, thanks for being here. I'm thrilled to be here. It's fun to visit you in your lair. So, I don't know much about how you wound up in the world of of movies, and I guess that's the starting point. I'd like to hear that story. It wasn't predictable from uh, from my youth. Um, I grew up not knowing that one could become a filmmaker. It was, uh, it was completely not on my radar. But one being you or anyone? I, I thought that the people who became directors were children of celebrities or, or actors themselves. Uh-huh. You know, it's, not like, it's not like a job that you could get and go to school and like that. Right. Cause where did you grow up? Well, I was born in Chile. Really? Yeah. And wow. I came to the States when I was five. And uh, then we were in Riverdale for three years and then moved up to uh, Rockland County. What brought your family? Are you of, of a long lineage of Chilean Jews? Or? Well, how long could that, <laughs> could that lineage be? I don't know. Um, but relatively long. My, uh, it was my great-grandfather who uh, went from Odessa to Chile about 1900. That's how you know somebody's from there because we call it Chile, like, you know, like the chain restaurant. <laughs> Like a chili pepper. <laughs> but if somebody's from there, they, it's Chile. Yes. But no Americans put in the effort for Chile. 
Unless no, and I usually don't either, people. unless I'm being a little pretentious myself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're allowed to because you're from Chile. Yes. But yes. everybody else, ah, oh, that guy's from Chile. You yeah, and, and I don't look like a Chilean, right? I don't look like Spanish is my first language. <laughs> so I overhear stuff all the time in LA that I'm not supposed to know. Oh, yeah? Like what? You know, just uh, just people talking who, you know, who speak in Spanish and assume that the gringo with red hair. I used to have red hair. I, uh-huh. I still look reddish yeah. uh, now, now that my hair is gray. But I just look so Anglo, you know, a little like Louis C.K., same thing with him. Uh-huh. Spanish is his first language. But um, but then there's also the weird thing where I, I'm dealing with someone in LA and I can tell they speak Spanish, uh, but I can't really break out the Spanish because that would be me, you know, assuming from the way they look that they speak Spanish, even uh-huh. though once I speak with no accent, it's it's my language, so it's okay. But there's a kind of weird politeness thing where I have to wait until I hear him speak Spanish to somebody nearby. And I'm like, ah, amigo. And then I can break into it. Right. You know, I've had a lot of elderly Spanish women come up to me and they break right into Spanish. They think I'm Hispanic. And I've had it also with with Muslim women and uh, Italian women. It's always women. It's always women. (laughs) They They just want to talk to you. They they just see me and they're like, oh, that's one of us. Nope. Nope. (laughs) But I always feel bad. It happens especially with with, uh, Spanish because so many hispanic people around here exactly but um there's a lot of spanish being spoken in la i always feel sad like uh, like you know they come up to me like i feel like i'm their grandkid or something you know and i'm letting them down yeah like old old uh hispanic women they come he's no no it's funny they assume that about yeah. you i don't see that uh, i don't not either, to assume but, it yeah you know it is funny. But they assume that I don't speak Spanish. You know why? You know when you'd see it? When I get a buzz haircut and I trim my beard short, then I look like Puerto Rican or something. Okay. All yeah. Right. But uh, when I'm a little mangier, it doesn't happen as <laughs> often. So your family moved when you were five years old from Chile. Yeah. Uh, what what inspired the move? So so I told you my dad's family, they're uh, you know Ukrainian Jews back about 1900. My mom is Hungarian. Um, she's actually a concentration camp survivor. Her mother, my grandmother, carried her through Terezin, the Theresienstadt camp, uh, as an infant. Can you imagine that? Like you, you imagine people in concentration camps, you don't imagine carrying a baby through one, but that's what my grandmother did. And, uh, and they survived. My grandfather did not. He perished at Dachau. And after the war, they, they went back to Hungary so they traded, you know, one kind of crazy Jew hatred for another, the, yeah. the Nazis for the Russians. And uh, we're not able to get out until 56. And uh, then they did. And they ended up in Chile because a relative had gone there and, uh, and made a life. And my mom met my dad in Chile. In 1970, the Chilean people elected a communist president, Salvador Allende. And for my mom, it was like, we've seen this before, we're out of here. And, and was she right in her prediction? Uh, well, he started to nationalize the big industries right away and created absolute chaos. Uh, but then he was overthrown by a military dictator in 73. I feel like it's more fun and, 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 or at least more interesting li- living in these Latin American countries where like, you know, yeah, there could always be an overthrowing. <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. There's no there's no real stability. So <laughs> there's no mentality of like, well, we got to wait this out for four or eight years. It's like, hey, you never know; they could overthrow tomorrow. <laughs> you know, I heard my dad say a few times, if if he'd known yeah. what was going to change, uh, we might have stayed. Probably not, but. You know, politics down there is is uh, not not the same spectator sport that it is here. Yeah, I mean, things have gone a lot more uh, crazy these days. But generally, there's not that much change in America. Uh-huh. Down there, there can be real change. So, for everybody who's always like eager for change, maybe they don't know what they're wishing for. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, what do you remember from your childhood in Chile? So I was five when I left. Um, I went to. I actually went to an English school and uh, I don't really remember it except that I hated the uniform. It was like, we had to wear a uniform with a blazer and, uh-huh. and gray flannel shorts, even when it was cold. <laughs> I was like, it's cold. I don't want to wear those shorts. Gray you know? flannel. All right? right. Yeah, I can picture that. So I remember you and I both have this uh, in common that we were uprooted from where we grew up at age five and moved. You a little more than I. Uh, I moved from Queens to Long Island. You need a passport for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was traumatic for me, though. I, I, I thought I, to this day, I, I still think it it changed my whole life and in a way that I didn't like, and I still don't know if I like it. But I didn't want to go to Long Island, and I still am angry at them for taking me out of the city. Mm-hmm. But um, well, that's a whole other story. But I remember a lot from those first five years. Uh, but you're saying not so much. Yeah, it's weird. I, I have I have impressions. Uh, I feel like some things that I remember, I remember because I was told about them. And it created a picture in my mind. And that's what I'm remembering. Right. Yeah, it's hard to know. It's a right. good little trick. You know, you can maybe shape your kid's memory by feeding them all kinds Absolutely. of... Absolutely. <laughs> when, when you were four years old, I took you all around the world. Ha- ha- haven't definitely. we learned that? That uh, <laughs> you tell something often enough, lie or true, it becomes true. Sure, yeah. So so you, you, your family moves uh, again. Where do they move in America? So we arrive. So we were on our way to Australia. And so we wanted to go there. But uh, my grandmother who lived with us... Um, her brother was also living in Chile, but moving to Spain. Uh-huh. And he didn't want his sister going all the way to Australia. So he suggested to my dad, check out New York. I have a friend there who actually owns an engineering firm. Uh-huh. Maybe you guys will get along. So we just checked out New York. We were staying in some hotel in Manhattan. I don't know which. And, um, and then he, here's the crazy story from that period. It didn't happen to me. It happened to my dad. So... So uh, I guess he knew two people in New York. The, 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 the guy with the engineering firm that my uncle was introducing him to. And he'd, he'd been a, my dad's a genius. And, and he was a, uh, not just an engineer, but I think he was also like teaching physics at the University uh, of Universidad de Chile in Santiago. And uh, so some professor, colleague of his said, you should meet this other professor at Columbia. So my dad was going to meet the guy at Columbia. He takes the subway mm-hmm. up to Columbia, misses his stop, thinks to himself, I'll get off at the next stop and walk back. It's not that far, judging from this map on the side of the subway car. Uh-huh. So he gets off the next stop. He's in Harlem. He's got to cross, uh, I think it's Morningside Park, something like that. Okay. Uh, so he's like the only white guy for miles. He's carrying all the money 
that my young family has in his pocket. Crossing this park and he gets mugged. <sighs> Two young guys, like 15, 16 years old, the way he describes them. So my dad is he's like 27 years old. He's, he's, got, he's, you know, he's got like a five-year-old son. My mom's pregnant. Uh, he has like $3,000 in cash on him. It's like all the money we have, you know? And, uh, and then these 15 and 16-year-old muggers want it. One's behind him and holding a knife to his throat. Uh-huh. And the other's in, in front of him demanding the money. My father saw the knife as it went to his neck. And he described it as like a, like a rusty butter knife, basically. So he just doesn't really think. He reacts. He's carrying an umbrella because uh-huh. it was drizzling. And he takes the umbrella and whips it behind him point first into the neck of the guy standing behind him and kicks the one in front of him in the balls and runs. You have to be so coordinated to do that. Right? I mean, he was a rugby player. He was like, my dad's like a real tough guy with a short temper. And Mm -hmm. I, I think he was like, it's like so offended. He was so offended that some somebody thinks he's just right. gonna hand over the money, you know? And uh, and so I, I don't know if that, I think he just left the umbrella sticking in one guy's neck and the other <laughs> one's doubled over with the balls pain. And he, uh, and he runs and he finds the professor that he's looking for at Columbia. Uh-huh. And only when he reaches the office does he process what just happened. And he starts like shaking, you know, trembling violently. Like yeah. He could have died. I mean, it was not, you know, not the smartest move to fight the muggers for, it's a lot of money, but at the end, it's just some money. Right. And, um, but that's what happened. Wow. Yeah. You know, I was not too long ago in a situation where I got mugged. And uh, what went through my head when I was thinking of doing this, like, I'm like, I can't choreograph anything. Like, <laughs> you don't see the like, Bruce Lee thing. You know, happening. I can't do it, you know? <laughs> I was like, but I, afterwards, I kept imagining in my head, like, what if I had like sort of like jumped on the wall and ran up it and flipped down behind the guy or something like, <laughs> like, well, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a heavy guy. There's no way I could have done that. That's probably against physics, you know? And, <laughs> and also I'm just not that coordinated. I can't, you know, but that's incredible that he did that. So, so I guess he figured once he's uh fended off these two muggers, he could survive New York. We may as well stay. May as well so, stay. <laughs> that was the, uh, yeah, the, the big sales pitch from the city of New York. <laughs> Move here. Yeah. Well, you survived the challenge, sir. You, you, you. So he didn't want to go to Australia because... I mean, because the job offer the job. was good. Yeah. And uh, and so we stayed and uh, moved out of the hotel, moved up to, uh, to Riverdale, Skyview Towers. It's like uh, this big, big like project, basically. Uh, huge, like three huge buildings. And I uh, was there for, uh, so kindergarten, first and second grade. And, uh, they, you know, they just put me right in uh, public school. And the teacher said, uh, oh, we'll put him in the, uh, you know, the program for Spanish kids, Spanish speaking kids. And my dad's like, no, he's not going to learn English in the program for Spanish speaking kids. Uh-huh. So they just put me in a regular population at PS 81. And, you know, at that age, you're like, you're like a sponge. So I basically was getting along, getting by in about three weeks and was fluent in English in three months. Wow. Well, I feel like we should do that to all kids, you know, just stick <laughs> them in another country when they're five. 
Make them go to school with the locals. It's pretty impressive because a lot was going on for you at this age. You know, you moved countries, you moved to you know a new a new community, a different language. Uh, you have a new sibling on the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, your whole life was changing all at once. All at once. So, so I wonder how that's affected you now. I think that I think that being an outsider like that when you're a kid makes you have a sense of the outsider for the rest of your life. I, I always feel like an outsider. I always feel like I'm just watching people and wondering how I'll fit in and yeah. never 100% natural. Me too. Mm-hmm. I always feel like a spectator. Yeah. And, and my wife said that too because um, we got, when I, was in, when I was 20, I started a comedy magazine. And you can see some of them hung up on the wall behind you there. But, oh, uh, that's your magazine. That was my magazine. That's cool. And they've been in these frames. I haven't looked inside them in years. But my dad sent me a loose one in the mail that he found. And I was flipping through it uh, this week. And, and my wife, uh, I read her some of the articles. And she's like, you know, I interviewed all these people. She's like, it's always like you're outside of it looking in. And I'm like, that's how I feel. Mm-hmm. She said, I think that's why, you know, I always feel as a comedian, I'm never... I never feel like I'm part of the group. I never feel like I'm in the in the quote unquote comedy community. You know, I always feel like I'm outside of it, and for many reasons now, especially because now I'm, you know, an observant Jew, and there's a lot of things that separate me. But I I feel, I always feel like, I, and as an observant Jew, I feel like an outsider, like looking into the observant Jews, you know, because I'm a comedian, you know. Right. So I. I but with comedians, wouldn't you think that? So that puts you like sort of outside the outsiders because isn't every comedian like a little damaged? Yeah, but there's like an insider of outsiders with them, you know? <laughs> I'm, I'm an outsider to the inside Who's inside outsiders. among the outsiders? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm just thinking like, if you, you're talking about Hollywood generally. Yeah. Or LA performance community generally. Everyone's damaged here. I mean, the actors forget about it. They're all like so damaged, so needy. I feel like so there are a bunch of people that are similarly damaged that form a group. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you don't share their particular form of damage. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, let me in. They're like, ah, oh, you're damaged different. <laughs> you're not damaged enough, Danny. <laughs> It's, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to start a web series at one point. I should have done it. Maybe I still will. Called The Hollywood Outsider, you know, where instead of like having the scoop on everything, I don't even know anything is going on. <laughs> Could you tell me what's going on? <laughs> Man on the street. Did you hear that there was uh, some guy stood outside the pavilions in West Hollywood like years ago? We, we heard this story when we got to film school at UCLA, but I'm sure it's just been floating around Hollywood for decades. That some guy stood outside pavilions and just every person, no matter who they were, what age, whatever, whatever they look like, every person who came out of the supermarket, he would say, hey, how's the script going? Uh-huh. And over half of them were working on something. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how long he did that for, for it to warrant a story. If it was just an afternoon, that's a really well spun afternoon <laughs> to now be somebody of legend, you know? But if he did it for like a month or, or, or a six month commitment... You know, that's something else I always think about when people say, I did this. How long did you do it for? You know, what did you do? You know, I, oh, I used to do this or I used to do that. Right. For what, a week, a month? Enough for the 10 story. years, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody used to do something for at least a day or an hour. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I don't know. Anyway, so so going back, you're in 
is it Riverdale? Riverdale. You're in the Bronx. Riverdale, the Bronx, and you're in the public school system. Isn't that system. weird, by the way, the Bronx? Every other place, like Brooklyn, Staten Island, yeah, Manhattan. A, a the. Why does Bronx get a the? <laughs> and how many sounds, other cities in the world get a the? It yeah. sounds plural. You know, it sounds like they're... They're the Bronx. There like, are several uh, Bronxes. Like the Denver Broncos. The, the Bronx. Yeah. With the CS. <laughs> but Queens, I guess, sounds like that too. There could be several Queens. But it's not the Queens. It's not the Queens. Is there any other city that's a the? The Hague, right? I, yeah, in Holland. All right. But that's really Den, Den Haag. Is that right? But I wonder if the Den means the. I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> Gotta go back. I like I like Holland. Yeah, me too. But there's also still a little bit of eerie leftover Holocaust feeling when I'm there, I feel. Right. It's like anything that still has little traces of Holocaust, you know. You're walking around, it's nice, and then, you know, there's the Anne Frank house, and it's just right. like it's right there. It's like, oh, this is a city that can turn on me. Have you been to Germany? Not yet. I stopped there once, and I just couldn't shake that feeling at all, you know. Anybody who was over 70, like, ah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It's like, uh, it's such a crazy thing, especially I'm sure for you, it's probably even more so in your in your daily psyche because you grew up the son of a Holocaust survivor. Very much. The Holocaust was really present in our house. Um, my grandmother, my grandmother was a funny saint. She was hilarious. I used to love hanging out with her and she was just there for me and my brother just all the time, cooking amazing Hungarian food. Um, so like, you don't think of her as a saint. She was just really fun and sweet, but she also was so in love with her husband. And, uh, and when he was taken from her, she was just waiting for the rest of her life to be reunited with him. It didn't occur to her to, you know, go on a date, start over, get remarried, nothing like that. She just poured all her love into her daughter, her only daughter, uh, and her grandsons and was just waiting. Her whole wow. life to be reunited. Um, <clears throat> but whenever there was a Holocaust t show on TV, she and my mom would sit there watching it, crying. And I always felt like, I know what the Holocaust is. You know, the people around me in Hebrew school or in school or whatever, when they're talking about the Holocaust, it's just a concept to them. Mm. In my house, it's real. And, uh, and so therefore, I don't have to hear more about it. I know, so I don't have to watch the movies or you know learn about it from other people. And so I, I always thought the the Holocaust was a little overdone in American Judaism. Yeah, I think so too. I feel like it's it's actually destroyed a lot of American Judaism because people identify only as Jewish in terms of the Holocaust. Like if you go back into the library of this show, one conversation I had that stuck with me was with Gilbert Godfrey when I asked him like what makes you feel Jewish and he's like you know if there's another holocaust that happens you know they would take him mm -hmm. and I and I and I I think that resonates with a lot of American Jews where they're just like oh I'm I'm Jewish because of you know everybody could turn into werewolves around me at one point you know and right that's essentially the idea of Nazis, right? Like everybody you know who seems like a regular person. But it's to tragic to sum up Judaism that way. Yeah. And then, you know, when you talk about the marketplace of ideas and sort of, you know, appealing to young people and appealing to their imagination, this sort of guilt that goes along with, and we were killed in huge numbers just a generation ago, doesn't do that much. 
Um, you know, it's tragic, but you know, you, you don't ignore the Holocaust in any way. It's real as hell. But there's so much more to Judaism. Yeah. And we are victims, you know. But I think it turns people off. So much Holocaust being, you know, presented to them all the time. They're like, well, what do I want to be Jewish for? You know, let me just live it up as much as I can without the Jewish thing. Because, you know, eventually I might just, being Jewish just means being inevitably exterminated. Mm. And uh, and that's a that's a bleak way to look at it, I think. Yeah. You know? <laughs> very, very bleak. Very bleak. And I think that that's part of why, you know, I had a bar mitzvah and and then I was out of there. I, I was not, I mean, we can talk a little bit more about it, but you know a little bit about me. You've been on my show. Uh, that's so much of my identity now is about what's amazing and spiritual and enlightening and funny and, and colorful about Judaism and, and particularly spirituality. And I, I missed all of that when I was a kid because I, you know, I just, I wasn't ready. I wasn't open. And what the Judaism around me, you know, didn't spark me. And so I had that bar mitzvah and I was gone, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and the tragedy is, is I was gone because I'm so spiritual. I always felt connected to God. I'm a science guy. And it just seemed to me like, obviously God made the world because the alternative is for no reason, <laughs> out of nowhere, billion stars came into being you know like like why would that happen um so i always felt that that god was around god had made the world and god was like connectable like you you could connect with god in some way and i thought judaism was not about that i thought judaism was about you know these old traditions and saying prayers that really last a long time and you know a seder or a service is like how many pages till we're done and when do we eat when do we eat sure and that's what ultimately that's what my movie would be called and when you made that movie is that where you still were mentally with judaism you didn't you still no. so okay no uh so so by then by then my my whole life had changed so um, and i want to capture that in a movie i want to get to that point but i feel like it's jumping ahead too much okay uh, we should fill people in at this point on what your show, The Accidental Talmudist, is. Uh, well, to sum up the show and and the page, I mean, the show is, grows out of the page. It's it started as a it started as a blog at the Jewish Journal, but became uh, a Facebook page quickly because I like that medium. It's it's very direct, um, and I like you know I post every day on Facebook, and the page just grew and grew, and it's going on a million followers now. And, uh, and I, I share, my wife and I, my wife Nina and I do everything together and we share what excites us about Judaism. And it's every week? The show is, every, we have two shows a week now. Mm -hmm. We do a Tuesday uh, sort of variety show and a, the Friday L'chaim show uh, on Friday morning. And, um, and those are the shows, but we post something on facebook.com slash accidental Talmudist mm -hmm. every day. Okay, so now let's go back to the Bronx. The Bronx. The Bronx, where you were a kid and in public school, absorbing a new language, absorbing a new culture. And at what point uh, did you decide, hey, I want to, I want to, or, or that you couldn't make films, but that other people could make films, but that's something you might want to do. But if you could do it, if you were the kid of a celebrity. Right. So, so to understand that, you see that my mom is on her third country in uh -huh. the United States, right? My dad on his second. Um, so... So my parents are very conscious of the fact that, you know, to be secure in this world, you need a portable profession. Um, so they kind of got to America, they looked around, they said, what's the best thing to do? 
in America. Okay, you should go to Harvard and be a doctor. Sal, Salvi, that's what they call me then. Uh-huh. You're going to go to Harvard and be a doctor. And what's, what language does that come from, Salvi? Is that Hungarian? That's Spanish. Spanish, okay. So short for Salvador, Salvi. Oh. And uh, so I'm five and I'm like, okay. <laughs> so now my plan is to go to Harvard and be a doctor. And I like the idea of being a doctor because my great-grandfather was a doctor. And I knew him, and he was an amazing guy. His name was Goyo, short for Gregorio Oxman. Um, and he had been a doctor, and I, I like the sound of it. I'll be a doctor like uh, Goyo. And, uh, and go to Harvard? Okay, why not? You know? and, um, and so that was the plan. And I just never really thought about, what do I want to be when I grow up? Mm-hmm. I knew. Um, and so the whole time I was growing up, it was like, make sure that your grades are good enough <laughs> to go yeah. to Harvard. And, uh, and as you know, got toward high school, it was, it was also clear that you're going to need some kind of extracurricular activity, you know? So my extracurricular activity came about in a funny way. Uh, I guess I'm going to just admit this now. So in eighth grade, my friends started smoking pot. They started in seventh grade. I was uh-huh. a good kid. I held out. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and I would never smoke at school. <laughs> like <laughs> they would. <laughs> so that's how I was the good kid. Yeah. Um, but then I got caught. And uh, it, was, it was just a, tr- it was like such a, uh, a hullabaloo. I mean, I was like, my next door neighbor was my best friend and we slept, I slept over his house. And like back then we just smoked this like brown Mexican weed. Uh-huh. Um, like that you'd buy, you know, a $40 bag was a four finger bag, you know, like a sandwich bag. And, uh, and we just like, you know, stay up at night and smoke joints. Like you had to smoke, uh-huh. you know, two or three or four whole joints just to get a buzz off this really bad weed. And uh, so like we did that one night and then the next morning, I'm like, it was not a school day. I think it was like summer had just started or something. And, uh, uh, and, and we like slept in the den, like in the, you know, pull out sofa, that sofa bed. And it's like 10 o'clock in the morning. I mean, you know, we were tired, like we were up late, you know, <laughs> doing the work of smoke, rolling and smoking joints. And then there's a pounding on the glass door behind us. And it's my mom open this door. I know you're in there. <laughs> it's totally freaky. Open the door. She's like, I know you've been smoking marijuana. <laughs> Get home immediately. Yeah. And she stormed away. And I'm like, oh my God, we're caught, man. It's over. It's all over. Oh my God. <laughs> so my buddy, like he didn't panic. I did. I was like, you got to throw everything away. <laughs> Get rid of the pipe. Get rid of the weed. Get rid of, you know. And uh, I get home and like my grandma and my mom, they're in hysterics, like, you know, Salvi's a drug addict. <laughs> the whole thing. And, uh, and my dad gets home from work hours later. And my mom, by the way, I think had come home, like my mom worked. I mean, she was a, a hospital pharmacist. Um, but what it turned out was that my buddy's older brother had gotten busted by his dad, his parents had split up and his dad, his brother was living with his dad. Somehow he got busted and he ratted us out. I could have denied the whole thing, uh-huh. but I was just like, ah, oh, we're nailed, we're caught. So I came clean. So um, 
So my dad gets home from work at the end of the day and he says, you're really lucky that I have had all day to think about this. Clearly you have too much time on your hands. So he takes out this bag and he had a box of running shoes. Cause my dad would go through hobbies. Like every three months you get totally into a new thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> so he had, he was just near the end of his running hobby. Um, so he says, these are your running shoes. And then he takes out a notebook. This is your journal. You're gonna write down how far you run and how long it takes you every day. I want you up to three miles a day in three weeks. Wow. That's, and I was like, okay. It's a tall order. It's a tall order. Um, so I started running and, uh, and, and during the next few weeks, like he sort of came, he found his new hobby, <laughs> which was Which was cycling. smoking weed. <laughs> we traded. <laughs> No, it was cycling. He got into, I don't know, I don't even, I don't know how it came to him, but he got into bikes. Uh-huh. And, um, and so he started riding. And then I said, well, can I switch to bicycling? Cause that sounds a little more fun. And uh, that was good for him. So he gave me the bike that he had bought like a few weeks before. And then he got like a really good bike. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to upgrade the punishment, please. <laughs> so I started riding a bike and, you know, keeping track of the distances and, um, you know, started riding a little further, a little further. And then there was like a bike race in town mm-hmm. with like real riders, but they added like the stock bike event, which is just for the local kids, you know? And I won that. And I was like excited. And I was like, ah, I, I'm into this cycling. Uh-huh. So then we got really into it. My dad was my coach and, um, and I would train every day. And I got the, you know, the fancy Italian bike and everything and, the, and, and shave my legs. You know, you do that in case you fall. It doesn't make you faster for wind resistance. It's in uh-huh. case you fall so you don't get the road rash and the hair all in the big scrape of the asphalt. Oh, I never scrape. knew about that. And, um, you know, and started going to the races and we drive to like all these towns in central and south Jersey on weekends for the races. And in the beginning, I would just get totally dropped and couldn't keep up with the pack and gradually could keep up with the pack. And eventually I became the New York State champ. Wow. In cycling. That's a and, uh, great victory story. That was a great victory story. And that's what I wrote my college essay about uh, when I applied to Harvard. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, the grades were good, but like they're not getting that many cyclists applying. <laughs> and so it's a little bit different than the, the usual, you know, editor of the yearbook thing. Imagine a <laughs> meeting of the administration. We're low on cyclists again. <laughs> and, uh, and I got in. And, uh, and, you know, I, I went up to Cambridge and, you know, I, I was expect, what I expected Harvard is not what it was. I thought it would be like just wonks and preps. And what and, was it? Uh, it was a really diverse and interesting place. Everybody had some weird story. Everybody mm-hmm. had a background. Everybody, you know, came from somewhere and had done something. And Any weird stories stay with you? About other people? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, everyone was... The year I got there, there was a guy who'd been homeschooled. Mm-hmm. And, and, and poor guy, he said that, well, I, I learned a lot about life from, from the sheep and goats, <laughs> all I ever needed. <laughs> poor guy, they made fun of him for that. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no, and, and, and it, was, it was awesome. I mean, I, I just love being there. Um, my identity then turned into a rower. I, I joined the rowing team. Mm-hmm. It was something you could do even if you hadn't done it in high school. And it was very consuming, 
there's an, a year round sport and, uh, and it had kind of mystical aspect to it. You know, not only the, the ancient traditions, it's like the oldest intercollegiate sport. Right. Um, but this thing of like eight guys rowing together and for the boat to go fast, you have to be perfectly synchronized. You build a real camaraderie with, with the guys on your team, right? So much so. That, so, so the magical thing is called swing. Like when the boat is going perfectly, and this won't happen, but a few times and mm -hmm. late in the year, you know, when, when you form the racing crews and, and everybody's so synchronized that literally, I mean, every blade is hitting, you know, the water at the same millisecond and going into the water, the same depth and being pulled through at the same rate. And, 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 and it, it's like magical. It's a magical, mystical feeling that you, you know you've only reached it a few times. But even as you're getting close to that, we, the camaraderie gets so close that like, you can tell if the guy three seats ahead of you is having a bad day because he had a fight with his girlfriend the night before. You know, like you could just like- You become so in tune with everybody, with each other. yeah. yeah. Um, so, so that's what I was doing in college. And, um, and I was a pre-med right because i'm going to be a doctor yeah, but pre-med at harvard that that was not fun at all it, it's like i mean there's a lot of smart people there right and a lot of them want to be doctors and so the pre-med classes are these huge survey classes graded on a bell curve mm -hmm. and you're all competing with each other you know because not everybody can get an a <laughs> statistically yeah. you know only a few are going to get the a and uh and it just sucked and even though i love science and thought of myself as a science guy, I was not enjoying those classes. Whereas I love my English classes, the, the literature classes, studying Shakespeare with really, I mean, just the most amazing Shakespeare scholars in the world. I was really enjoying it so much more. So I said, you know what, I, what am I killing myself for? I, I've done the pre-med classes pretty much. I'm gonna be an English major. So you so became post-med. Post-med? Post-med is when you give oh, up post -med, medicine. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was. And uh, so I tell my parents, so, so I call my parents, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, switching from biochem to English. Like, can, how does that affect you going to medical school? No problem. I, you know, six, six courses you need for pre-med and I've already taken five, just one more. And then six weeks or six months, something like that later, I call them up and I'm like, I don't want to go to medical school. He's back on the grass. <laughs> <laughs> I think my dad said, are you high? <laughs> but I can honestly say I did not smoke pot at Harvard because we're rowers. I mean, we were really dedicated. Like you couldn't let your teammates down that way. Mm -hmm. but, um, but no, I didn't want to go to medical school anymore. So my dad's response was, so then obviously you're going to law school. <laughs> I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> And, and he said, because with a law degree, even if you don't want to be a lawyer, you will always be safe because you'll have that law degree to fall back on. I thought it sounded good. I was just so busy rowing. I didn't, I wasn't thinking about my future. Mm -hmm. So I made it through. I got the English degree and I got into NYU law school and I, you know, moved down to the village. So I started slumming it in NYU. Right. And, I, and it's like, thank God I got there, you know, just living in the village, you know, in Manhattan. And uh, what year was this? So I got there in 87. Uh -huh. And uh, and then I just started living two lives right away. So by day, I was the diligent law student. Because what I want, I did want to do something that that first semester at NYU, I want to, I said, I'm going to, 
I'm going to be a good student. It is true. I went to Harvard, but I was never a student that would just do all the work because I wanted to master the class. I was like figured out very quickly, what do you need to ace the test? Do that in the minimum amount of time. And I always had lots of other interests. I mean, whether it was rowing or partying, <laughs> you know, I had stuff to do. Uh-huh. Um, but that first semester at NYU, I read every book, I went to every class, I, I, I took notes. And then that at night I would copy down my notes, you know, so that, so that I would have like the outlines for the exams at the end of the term. Hmm. And just worked so much harder than I'd ever worked before. And then I took the tests expecting to ace them all. And I got like B minus, B minus, B minus, B. And I thought, I can get a freaking B minus <laughs> doing all that work. I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> and uh, so I went back to my old ways of just figuring out what you need for the test. And my grades went up. Uh-huh. <laughs> I didn't waste all that time on law school. As, as they say in the infomercials, you were working smarter, not harder. <laughs> exactly. That's real. <laughs> But really what was going on for me was, you know, I had read all these books as an English major. Now I started sort of tearing through sort of series of books just on sort of, I don't know, just different subjects in the world, different aspects of life. Because it occurred to me when I got to law school, I'm like, who the hell am I? I didn't decide to go to law school, just like I didn't decide to go to medical school. It's like, I just flowed in here, you know? Mm-hmm. I, you know, so many of my peers and certainly according to my family, like you go to college, you go to grad school. If it's not medical school, it's law school. I, I, was, I was actually intrigued by what I was learning in law and about the English language and about how relationships are, you know, affected by contracts. But I, I didn't think I want to be a lawyer. And, yeah. I, and I was thinking like, who, who am I? What yeah. do I want to do? And what do I want to be? I know that feeling. I had also in college. I had that moment when I, I was going back to to the Jewish side of things. But I was raised in a an observant Jewish home, and I was doing stand up. And everybody would go out Friday nights and do sets, and I would stay in this little studio apartment I was renting. My roommate would go out and party, and I would do Shabbat by myself, <laughs> and uh, and I would just sit there. I was like, what am I? it hit me at one point, do I even believe in any of this? What am I doing? Like, why am I missing out? Everybody's living life. I used to go to the, there was a Sephardic congregation on the Upper East Side. No one would invite me over. I even started trying to get invites and nobody cared. Nobody, you know, I just, I was, I was again, like a real outsider to them, even though my family, we were raised Sephardic. But these people were like hardcore Sephardic, and I was soft, <laughs> softcore Sephardic, and they You're didn't Sephardic enough, <laughs> not Sephardic enough. And also, they also were very affluent families, and I was just this single weird art kid, you know, in college, and it just I couldn't get an invite to, to anybody's house. So I was doing, I was, I was spending, you know, I had very little money. I'd go and shop a whole Shabbat meal, the challahs, and kosher food, and I'd go up to my apartment. And I'd sit there alone and do these Friday nights. It was very lonely. Or I'd go back to Long Island and and then like regret that I went back to Long Island often mm. because you know I, my parents would be like, "What are you doing? Why are you doing comedy? What are you this that?" I just like better to do it alone in, in the apartment, less less harassment. So um, at one point, I'm like, I never even chose to be observant. Like this was all just told to me. Who am I? I'm like, and that, and that was it. I gave it up for for twelve years. 
I, oh. I, I was just like, so we have that little bit similar. <laughs> I just, uh, I was just like, this is, this is, this isn't how I, this isn't me. This is them. Hmm. They could be them. I'm going to be me. And I was, I'm going out and doing shows on Friday nights and, uh, you know, stopped at the kosher and everything else. And, uh, but anyway, so I had that moment in college too. It sounds like you had it with regards to, to the, to, to the, the profession. Yeah. Profession. Um, yeah, so so I'm on this uh, sort of intense mission of self-discovery and and sort of being organized about it, you know, sort of like reading about different fields and you know figuring out who my heroes are and and just filling journals, um, and I was just like this bohemian poet warrior by night, you know, <laughs> and I would go to I'd go to clubs, you know, in Lower Manhattan. Not, not not clubs, not like dance clubs, but bars, you know, like like interesting yeah. bars, bars with a history. Um place like Chumley's. You ever go there? No, but did, did you go to the Barry Poetry Club? Was that around back then? I don't know that one. Okay. Chumley's was an interesting place because the first time somebody takes you there, you think you're being, you know, attacked by a serial killer. <laughs> How so? Because <laughs> your friend is saying, let's go to this bar. Mm-hmm. And then you walk down a street and you walk down a street and then you walk into the courtyard of a residential building that's dark. You're like, what the hell are we doing here? Uh-huh. And, uh, and then you go down a set of stairs like to a basement. You're like, do I know this person? Like, are they trying to kill me? <laughs> and then they open a door, which in the old days, you'd have to knock on because it was a speakeasy in the 20s. Oh, cool. That's what Chumley's was. And that's why it's a bar, like a real bar that's in the basement of a residential building. Oh, wow. Um, but anyway, places like that. And, and I would just, uh, you know, get a drink. Bombay Sapphire Rocks Twist Wine Glass. <laughs> <laughs> okay. and, uh, and start writing. And uh, it's actually a good move because invariably a pretty girl would come up and say, what are you writing? Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, and then and that would be good. But uh, but I was just always writing and, and trying to figure this out. And I, and I was right. You know, then I then I heard about a poetry uh, reading sponsored by NYU. You know, th- th- there was the New Yorican Poets Cafe at that time, right? So like like sort of poetry slamming was just becoming a thing. And um, and so at NYU they organized this poetry thing and and uh, open mic and you could just come up and read a poem and. You know, most of the poems were like just about angst and, 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 you know, being disenfranchised and stuff like that. And I'm just one who would, you know, you can hear it in my voice. I just get into adventures. I get into weird situations. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I like that, you know, you can hear that in your voice. You can, you can hear it in my voice. I'm yeah. an adventure. <laughs> so I just, uh, you know, my poem was really just me telling a story about some adventure I'd gotten into. And that was easy for an audience to hear and relate to as opposed to these angst poems. And so after that first open mic night, the woman organizing the, the event comes up to me and says, uh, so we're thinking about doing something new at our next uh, poetry night. And uh, what we're gonna do is spotlight one poet for the first half, about 45 minutes. And then for the second half, we'll have the open mic night. And I'd like you to be the first spotlight poet. And I was like, wow, thanks, I'd, I'd be honored. And uh, then she walked away and I thought to myself, what have I done? <laughs> I've only written one poem. 
<laughs> I just read it. <laughs> I have no body of work and I have to fill 45 minutes. <laughs> you were an overnight sensation. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a month to get 45 minutes worth of material that's going to entertain an audience. Wow. And, uh, well, you're the guy who was running three miles a day in a yeah. short amount of time. So what the hell? So, you yeah. know, so I made it like a multimedia storytelling. I, I just figured, you know, my stories that, that, that were anecdotally uh, entertaining enough. And, um, and I would have a slideshow going on behind me and I'd bring in a drummer to uh, accompany me. <laughs> you can't go wrong with a drummer. You can't really go wrong with a drummer <laughs> in the village. Yeah. <laughs> So bohemian. <laughs> <laughs> but if not, I think people are just impressed if you bring a drummer because there's so much equipment that goes along with it. And they go, oh, look, it's got to be good. There's a drummer. Yeah, there's a drummer. You know. <laughs> he played congas. Yeah. He, had, he had a couple of conga drums. And uh, oh, so wow, that is over. bohemian. They're congos. Yeah, it should have okay. been bongos. That would have been the <laughs> ultimate pretentious bohemian. <laughs> but congas is close enough. And... Uh, uh, you know, so it went over pretty well. And so at that point I thought, oh, now I think I know what I am. I'm a performance artist. Mm -hmm. So- uh, Call your dad. <laughs> no. <laughs> so I'm gonna finish the law degree. But I think I'm a performance artist. And, uh, and so like this sort of, this, this thing kind of built up. And then like the big show that I did was I rented this black box theater in uh, Chelsea. And um, and it was like this crazy thing where I had like different storytelling stations around the room, like a sort of chair in the middle and a ladder that I could climb up on top of and a platform that I could climb up on. And, and, and there was an easel with a big like pad <laughs> on it and people could write a word and I would riff on that. <laughs> and then there was this like, I, I got these sheets of butcher block paper and I made a page that was 10 feet across by six feet high yeah and you could write a huge word on that and then you could and then there were like several layers of it so you could uh -huh. take a piece of tape and like pull it right down the middle of it and it, like the two halves of the page would just like slowly fall off to the side and reveal another <laughs> blank page you were fully in it i was fully in it <laughs> and then and, and then my buddies and i went out at one night and we put up posters you know all over downtown to like you know advertise the show it was called help and at the bottom, it said Salvador. The show is called Help, period. <laughs> like there was a period after the word help. I thought that like was you know, full of meaning. Sure. I was gonna like give help to the world. <laughs> but what it actually said was there was posters all over town that said, help Salvador. <laughs> like this guy needs help, man. And I really did need help because I spent so much time, you know, like, gearing up for this show and there was like a camera and a wireless microphone and all this stuff this is 1990 like it was cool to have a wireless mic yeah. you know and uh and, and a guy was videotaping it and you know and, and and we put up the posters all over town and i put an ad in the paper like i spent so much time producing this show that i didn't leave time for writing it <laughs> rehearsing it <laughs> Or directing it. It was just going to be me, man, <laughs> riffing on whatever idea came into my head. And uh, so we did it. And it was the night before graduation of law school. So it was like everything came to a head, you know, it was like mm -hmm. the, the show career and the law career. And like all these people showed up and they were all like all perched all around the room. And, uh, 
uh, you know, and, and after it was over, I got, I got the same reaction from most people. They were like, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, you know, I, I, I had enough sense to understand that it was terrible. <laughs> so pretentious and ridiculous it was horrible um so so i I had accepted a job at a law firm (laughs) (laughs) and uh um so i so so i had that to fall back yeah (laughs) but uh but but i had also started working on a uh, on a book because i what i said was all right if i'm going to actually be an artist of some kind a creator of some kind it's going to have to be more organized and rigorous and diligent than help salvador and uh and so i'd started writing this book um it's called to be another pretentious title and uh but but it was an interesting story and, and, and i was working on that and a friend of mine from college somehow connected with or ran into or something in Manhattan and told me he's going to film school. And I'm like, film school? What's that? Uh It's like, you go to school to learn how to make films. Like to be a director? Yeah, to be a director. You can do that? (laughs) I mean, it was honestly not on my radar. Like like where this conversation began, I didn't know you could go to school to become a director. If you had asked me, what the number one job, most desirable job in the world is, I would have said rock star. I, I know I can't sing. <laughs> so uh-huh. the number two most desirable job in the world for me would have been director. I mean, I love movies, film makers were my heroes, films were, I just love, not, I, I wouldn't even say filmmakers were my heroes. I just love movies. Yeah. You know, my, my heroes are probably novelists because I identified them as people. I didn't really know about directors, you know? Um, and, but I just loved movies, you know, and I just didn't know that this was a possibility. So then I started looking into film schools and I mean, I'd already been to college, I'd been to law school, I had loans and, and I thought, well, I, I wanna go to, if I wanna go to a film school, I wanna go to a top film school, but I wanna go to an affordable top film school. So there's only one school that fit that bill and it was UCLA, which is a public school with a great film school. And I looked into it and I was like, all right, they're gonna take 18 people out of about 700 applicants. And I have no background whatsoever, so I have no business getting in. Mm-hmm. But if I get in, then it was meant to be, a message from God. So that, that was the big thing in my life. I was either gonna be a novelist, you know, and be a lawyer until I could be that, or I was gonna go to film school and be a filmmaker. And, and, and it was just, I left it up to God. If I get in, then I'm, that's it. And, uh, and so I applied and, you know, I, I sort of played the South American magical realist uh, card. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and uh, and, I, and I, that was good enough to get to the top 50 for the interviews. And then once I got the interview, I'm like, oh my God, I can really make this happen. And so I'd been through a lot of interviews as a law student and I learned about interviewing. So here I can give a tip to your audience, Danny, uh-huh. about how to interview successfully for anything. If you want to get through an interview and get the offer, what you have to do is to get the other person talking as much as possible. 
because they'll never remember what was said in the interview because they do so many. But if they do all the talking, they'll remember it was really intelligent conversation. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, to get them talking, I wanted to learn about them. So like I called around UCLA and found out who, which professors would be doing the interviews. I got some secretary to tell me. Uh And then I, I learned, you know, about them. I went, this was before the internet. So I went to the NYU library and research these professors, you know, and, and one had made, you know, some B movies. One was a, a video artist, and uh-huh. one was a documentarian. You know, and I either saw their work or learned what was in it. And so when the interview came, I was like, I wasn't even like showing that I had prepared. I just kind of like dropped, <laughs> you know, just just little asides that I knew would sort of spark them to talk about what they had done. And thank God I got in and I got to LA and I got to UCLA and uh, started making movies. And like, I mean, the second day of class, we're doing some kind of video exercise and I'm just feeling like, thank you, God, thank you, God, thank you, God. I almost missed this. (laughs) This is where I was meant to be. It's it's kind of a really funny thing where it's like, I'm just going to leave this up to God, but I'm going to do intense research. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) On every single person here. I mean, whatever happens, happens, but I need to know everything. <laughs> but okay, cool. So you, you, you get there, you finally feel like you belong, you're, you're, you're loving the process, learning yeah. about film, and, and, uh, and, and back to you. Where were we? <laughs> and, 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 you know, like when you make a movie, you're, you're creating a world. And I love that. And, uh, and I just... I mean, I was just determined right from the start that I was going to make movies. Um, UCLA isn't like that, actually. You would think, well, those 18 out of 700 who got here to learn, to to get an MFA in directing, the reason they did that was so they would become film directors, right? Mm -hmm. But they don't. And it it actually doesn't feel like that at all when you're there. Like people are making these films that are about angst, sort of like the poets reading their stuff at at NYU. (coughs) They're doing film as therapy, not as a professional school learning how to make movies. And, And that's why so few directors, I mean, look, when you go to law school at the end of it, if you're still breathing and you can shake hands with people, you're going to get a job as a lawyer. I mean, if you go to a good film school, I mean, a law school, there's no road to become a director. There's no, you know, hey, we've been waiting for you to graduate. Please, you know, come make movies for this studio. You have to elbow your way in somehow. Um, But there are other film schools that are just really about giving you the connections and giving you the professional outlook and the experience so that, you know, you can make movies. And plenty of directors have come from UCLA, Mm -hmm. but just most people that go through it don't, you know, and like very few people from my class would would ever make a movie. And I'm not sure, but I might be the only one that directed a feature out of my class, maybe one or two others, but... But but that's what I wanted. I wanted to make a living making movies. So. How, how did your dad take it that you? Oh, he still hasn't long? recovered. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they did it. They, he didn't send you another pair of running shoes. Or... <laughs> they, 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 it's like they succeeded. Like they got to America. Yeah. They got their kid into Harvard. They got him into a top law school. He took a job as a mergers and acquisitions lawyer on Wall Street. Yeah, and then quit. But he can never shake that grass, man. <laughs> <laughs> that Mexican weed. <laughs> and um, 
so I just really wanted to make movies, you know? And like, and so the first thing I saw was, if you want to make an independent movie, you got to write it, you know? I mean, maybe you could get a script and, and direct that, but you're more likely to get, you know, a good script into your hands if you write it, and at least one you're going to love. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they, w- at, and now very successful program at UCLA is a screenwriting program. A lot of people came through that program and are, you know, writing scripts that are getting made into movies. So I wanted to take the screenwriting class. And I show up first day of a class and I'm like, yeah, I'd like to take this class. And they're like, are you in the directing program? Yeah, you can't be in this class. Why? Because directors never finish their scripts when they take this class. They're so busy making their movies and they never finish anything. The directors sense very quickly that there's no job waiting for them and they don't want to leave. <laughs> and so like the directors at UCLA in that period, I don't know what's going on yeah. now, but in that period, they wouldn't graduate. They'd be there for five, six, seven, eight years. And the excuse was, I'm working on my movie. I'm working on my thesis, I'm working yeah. on my movie. They're always working on that movie, making a little money, shoot a few scenes, working on the movie, editing. And it would take years and they wouldn't leave. And so actually it was such a problem that my year, like the year before us, they only took six because mm-hmm. they didn't have room. And my year, I think maybe this is why I got in, they were looking for people that consciously were go-getters who wanted to make a movie, get into film school, get out of film school and get out there. And that was my attitude. So I had to prove to the screenwriting department that I was gonna finish the script. Like uh-huh. they wouldn't let me in the class. And then the next, UCLA is a quarter in quarters, so three quarters a year. Um, and then the next quarter I had to show up on the first day of class and say, I'm, I'm gonna write a screenplay, I'm here, I'm here for that. And they didn't let me in. And then the next quarter, so the third time I showed up on the first day of class and you know said, I'm doing, I, I guarantee you that I will finish a screenplay in 10 weeks along with your screenwriters. Uh-huh. And uh, that time they let me in and I did it. And, uh, and I finished my screenplay and I wrote three screenplays while I was at UCLA. And later I would teach screenwriting at uh, Antelope Valley College. And when I, I would always tell my students, when you're set out to screenwrite, just get through your first one because your first screenplay is garbage no matter who you are and what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You're just learning how to write. And it's going to take five screenplays before you know anything. So just get through them. Um, and so that's what I did. I mean, I, I really learned how to write screenplays and, uh, and I was writing them and I, and I was thinking about a screenplay that I would make into a movie. And, um, and you know, the one that was supposed to be that first movie ended up not being. What but, was that one about? I was called Napa Red. Believe it or not, it had weed in it. <laughs> <laughs> that one was, uh, but it was it was a crime caper. It was about the. Uh, it was actually about the coke dealers versus the pot farmers. Uh-huh. Um, so so, I, but I ended up meeting a lot of people through that, and you know, we almost got it financed several times. Believe it or not, I, I had a script in LA <laughs> that almost got made into a movie and then didn't. Yeah. And, um, but during that period, I met Nina, uh, my wife who would become my writing partner. And um, we didn't work on that one together, but what we did end up working on together was a Lincoln movie. Um, and we, we ended up working for two years on a Lincoln script. This was long before there was a Spielberg project. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, there hadn't been a Lincoln movie, you know, in decades. And we thought that would be the great American movie we're so proud of that script. I had an agent and, and the agent was like, why, why, why are you writing a period piece? You know, it's so uncommercial. Uh-huh. Well, just read our Lincoln movie. 
she read it. She's like, you know what? This is amazing. And you're right. Lincoln is a brand. People have heard of Lincoln. And yeah. there hasn't been a Lincoln movie in a long time. <laughs> Only in, in Hollywood. Lincoln is a brand. <laughs> and not a car. And, yeah. uh, and, uh, and so the plan was it was going to go out to the studios <laughs> on a Friday. And so now we're having the dream right yeah. there's going to be an auction over the weekend and by monday we're going to sold our lincoln script for a lot of money and we're going to be on the map and we're going to you know be on the road to production at some studio and our lives are going to be changed forever the whole thing and that was all going to happen on a friday and that wednesday variety has an article steven spielberg has bought doris kearns goodwin's book about Abraham Lincoln. Tom Hanks is attached to play Lincoln. Oh. Oscar-winning writer John Logan will adapt the book into a screenplay. And we were done. I mean, like overnight, it's not just that no one was gonna buy our Lincoln project. They wouldn't even read it. It was radioactive. It was poisoned. It was nothing. You don't compete against Steven Spielberg in Los Angeles. Uh -huh. And all that work was just for nothing, you know? And uh, I said, this is great. I mean, you know, maybe we can't sell it, but it shows we're really on the right track, you know? And, yeah. and maybe there's room for more than one Lincoln movie. I mean, clearly it's a good idea to do a Lincoln movie. Yeah. Nino's like, you're insane. This is a disaster. <laughs> nothing good about this. And, um, you know, we had a sort of, we could have quit right then because it was so frustrating, but it's just not in my nature to quit. I mean, I hadn't made a movie yet and that's what yeah. I came here to do. And, um, and so I said, look, you know what? I didn't come here to sell a script. I came here to make a movie. And this is what happens if you, you know, do the kind of subject that you could end up competing with a studio. So forget that. Let's just make a movie that we know we can make, that no studio is going to want to make, uh, and that makes sense for us. And if we have to shoot it with our friends and a video camera from Best Buy, we can do that. Uh -huh. and, um, and we came up with this idea that, it just tickled us that you know uh, I don't know how it came, but it, it, that a kid would uh, would dose his dad <laughs> at a holiday dinner, you know, and and sort of like make the dad see things like the the young people see it. Uh -huh. And it was going to be Thanksgiving, but then Nina said, "There's been a million Thanksgiving movies. Why don't we do a Seder? You know, a Seder is such an interesting dinner. It's a dinner with a script to begin with. Yeah, and um, and by then I had." You know, we had become religious. My my life had totally changed already. How did that um, happen? Um, so okay, so there was an event in my life that really, it's like the you know there was before that event and after that event. That's true of every event. <laughs> no, Dan, <laughs> are you saying that there's before <laughs> our podcast, <laughs> Modern Day Philosophers, and after? Uh, I mean, that hopefully, is true. You know. that is true. <laughs> Um, but really the event that, you know, I've had, you've, I've described to you already a few things. I've had a colorful life, but really what changed my life, it was 1997. Uh, and my grandmother that I've told you about, uh, who was a survivor and who was just so dedicated to, to my mom and to my brother and me, um, you know, in 1997, she had, she had gotten very ill. It was actually a melanoma, uh, that made her so ill and um and she was dying and this was september of 97 and uh, my brother and i and my mom you know we're all gathered around her at the very end and she was 88 years old and you know 
racked with cancer and her body was just like you know, just really shriveled and she weighed like 80 pounds or something and we were you know all gathered around her bed and holding her hand and, and telling her how much we loved her and then she took her last breath you could tell it was the last breath and then her life was over and at that very moment I sort of looked and she was to my right and I kind of looked a little bit to my left in this room, her room at our house. And, it, and, and, and the air in front of me started to get kind of shimmery. And, and then it was like, there was like an opening being created. And it was sort of like kind of crystalline around the opening almost like like little kaleidoscopic shards like in a chandelier but there was like an opening opening wider and i was looking through this opening and i saw my grandmother not as she was filled with cancer on the bed but the way i knew her an older woman to be sure but my grandma i called her ita which was short for abuelita which when i was little i couldn't say so i would just say ita and my brother took that on too and we called her ita and I saw Ita moving toward something. And then I saw she was moving toward someone. And I could see that it was my grandfather that I had never met, who died in concentration camp, and that she was waiting for 53 years to be reunited with the great love of her life. And this was the moment I'm like, oh my gosh, she's fine. This is it. She's finally going to be reunited with him. His name was Imre. She's finally going to be united with Imre. And yet her movement toward him was reluctant. Almost like, like, a, like a puppy being dragged across a kitchen floor and he doesn't mm -hmm. want to go. It's like she was being dragged toward him. And I was like, why is she reluctant? She looks at him and she goes, I remembered you being a lot better looking. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's similar to that. Yeah. But the other way, she was feeling he won't want me. Because he's that young, handsome man, like the last time I saw him. Oh, he and still I'm, looked like that? Sure. He and was, she looked old. But she was an old lady. She's like, I'm an old lady. He won't want me. I, I could just tell that by looking at them, you know, and the way she was moving toward him. And he reached out and, and, and held her and, and, and brought her to him and embraced her. And it got brighter. And then, and then she was young again, like the last time she had seen him in Hungary in 1945. And, and they kissed and it was like the absolute Hollywood, you know, the music and the lights and it, like the, the, the great love of the, you know, this great love story that spanned continents and decades. And, 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 and they were so filled with love. And, and then they were gone. In that moment, she said, now you have 50 years of dishes to catch up. <laughs> Come on, let's go. And I was, you know, I was just like stunned and, you know, my jaw hanging open and right next to me, my brother and my mother, you know, crying that they've just, you know, we've all lost Ita. But I have like tears running down my face and it's of joy because... Like, I've just seen it. I've just seen that other world. That's wild. It's real to me. It's like the final gift that she left me was this peak at what I, I guess, had always suspected was real, but now is tangible to me. 
You know, it's like I'd seen their souls. I'd seen the next world, like just a little glimpse of it through that portal before it shut. And when I got back to LA. You sure you weren't on that Mexican weed again? No Mexican weed, nothing, nothing. And when I got back to LA, I, uh, you know, wanted to honor her. And, you know, just I just went to a synagogue, like the kind I'd gone to when I was a kid, a big conservative shul. And, uh, but now I was ready. And, and I was very moved in that service. And I thought, you know what? I've been looking for spirituality everywhere. Endurance sports, Grateful Dead shows, drum circles, meditation, Taekwondo, like all these things that to me had a mystical component to them. All the reading that I had ever done and philosophy and stuff. By the way, we're gonna talk about philosophy, right? We're getting, we're getting to that. Yeah. Um, and I'd search for it in all these other places. I'm like, but I didn't search for it in my own backyard. And that's when I started opening myself up to Judaism and to my ancestors and to everything that my grandmother and all my ancestors had bequeathed to me. And I started learning and, uh, and I just couldn't learn fast. I'm like, oh my God, I almost missed it. Just like I almost missed film school. It's like I almost missed our tradition. And I, uh, and I just started learning voraciously and going to classes and learning with different rabbis. You're learning voracious, voraciously? Voracious, voracious. voraciously. Voracious. I love it. In the beginning, there was, <laughs> there was voraciousness. And um, well, and just, just to tie up what happened to me, um, you know, every rabbi that ever taught anything about anything would mention the Talmud. And I'd be like, I guess the Talmud is some kind of collection of wisdom, but I don't really know what it is. I'd, I'd like to read it, but I wouldn't know where to start. I don't really know what it is. And I don't know if I'm allowed. I'd heard of like Kabbalah, you have to be 40. Maybe for the Talmud, you have to be a certain age, or maybe you have to be a rabbi. I don't know. So whenever I would get a book for a class or you know, just whatever I was learning, I'd often go to a Jewish bookstore. I'd often go to the mitzvah store on Pico Boulevard. And I would see these shelves of Talmud, which looks like three Encyclopedia Britannica. I mean, it's you know, 72 volumes, it's mm -hmm. enormous. And I would think, oh, that's the Talmud. Well, I'd like to read that, but I don't really know what it is. I wouldn't know where to begin. And I don't know if I'm allowed. And I went through that thought process in that store a lot of times. One time I was in that store, I looked at those books, I had the same thought and I thought, What's the matter with me? They're just books. I was an English major at Harvard. I went to law school. I mean, I'm educated. Like, they're just books. There must be a book one of the Talmud. Yeah. And I'll just get that and see what it's like. So I found book one. It's called Brachus. I took it to the counter. The kid at the register said, oh, you're doing Daf Yomi. I said, what's Daf Yomi? For your audience, you can describe what happens next he looks at me like this <laughs> squinty eyes squinty eyes suspicious right like that it became my job to describe that look <laughs> and i'm thinking oh man i'm not allowed to read the talmud i must look like such an idiot right now uh -huh. and he's like no no yeah daf yomi is this worldwide program where everyone is reading the whole talmud on the same schedule, one page a day, Daf Yomi, one page a day. It takes seven and a half years to read the whole Talmud. 
And today is day one. Wow. So I just happened to buy book one of the Talmud on day one of a seven and a half year cycle. It would have been amazing if it was day three of seven and a half years, yeah. but it was day one. And I was like, okay, God, I get the message. And I started doing it. And I, I who had no business doing dafyomi, and the people who do that went to yeshiva. They, they know Hebrew, they know Aramaic. I mean, like, who am I to do dafyomi? But I felt like I was on a mission from God. And I just stayed with it. It's an hour a day, every day, wedding day, Yom Kippur, you're sick, you're directing a movie, you got to do your daf. And- uh, Daf is a page. A daf is a page. And so I stayed with it. And uh, it was at the end of seven and a half years, I completed it. And I started writing about my experience and that's how I became the accidental Talmudist. And that's why today I have this page that's become a full-time enterprise wow. of sharing Jewish wisdom with all people, an accidental Talmudist. So this was going on when, when your wife proposed that you change it from a Thanksgiving film to a Seder film. You were right. No, we had the... already made When Do We Eat. We had already made When Do We Eat. Oh. So yeah, so I was... I reconnected with Judaism after my grandmother died. And then, and then and that was about, a, also actually coincidence, about a seven and a half year period before I encountered the Talmud to do Dafyomi. I actually later learned that my grandmother died just when the previous cycle had begun. I don't know what it means, but. It's interesting yeah. anyway. But yeah, so she and I were growing together for about seven and a half years and going to synagogue and and just learning and, and we made When Do We Eat, which was, you know, became a, a comedy, a very dysfunctional family comedy set at a Passover Seder uh, about a kid dosing his dad at the Seder. But beneath the surface, we poured Yiddishkeit and, and, and Torah and Hasidus and, and Kabbalah into that movie. I mean, there's uh -huh. many, many meanings con at work throughout that movie. Yeah, it seems like it's like all all the uh, themes from your life coming together: the drug use, the the Judaism, the the, the you know the filmmaking. Yeah, you you put it all together, and it's great. It's really one of the best Jewish films, like Jewish themed comedy film. For you got that, you got the Zohan, uh, <laughs> right? I mean, there there aren't too many in that in that genre that are, but it's really well done and. Uh, I saw it after I met you, and I remember being like, okay, let me see what he's done here. And I, saw, I was like, oh, wow, this is real. This is legit. This is a great film. Thank you. So, Thank um, you. So, we so, had an amazing cast. We really did. So, so then you did Saving Link. Was it and, then, and then we never gave up on our dream to make a Lincoln movie. We yeah. were very frustrated for all those years that we couldn't make our Lincoln movie because Steven Spielberg might make a Lincoln movie at uh -huh. any time, and no one would help us, uh, and he wasn't making his. And then I finally said, we're just gonna make our Lincoln movie. And people are like, well, okay, you could make a movie about a family dinner, but how are you gonna make a period epic about Abraham Lincoln on an independent budget? Uh -huh. And that was the challenge. And, uh, and we found a way. Uh, it's, it's something you know, I created called Cine Collage, where we took photographs from the Library of Congress and sort of cut them up and arranged them in space and made 3D environments out of them and put our actors in 1860. Wow, that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And it's called Sa Saving, Lincoln. Saving Lincoln. Was that because you're like, oh, we gotta save this script somehow? <laughs> <laughs> like help Salvador, <laughs> Saving Lincoln. Yeah, you're um, saving this Lincoln Yeah, script. well, I mean, it, we, we found a new angle. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't know what Spielberg was gonna do. The, our original Lincoln script 
was sort of similar to what he, what we thought he was going to do, which was the friendship between him and the guys who had been his rivals in the 1860 mm-hmm. presidential election and then became his friends and, um, and teammates, as it were, and, and leading the nation through the Civil War. And uh, so we went back into our research. We started over, wrote a completely new script, and we found Lincoln's whack pack. This <laughs> amazing, colorful, fantastic character called Ward Hill Lamon who was his buddy that Lincoln like just liked having around because <laughs> uh, he played banjo and sang dirty songs, uh, but also became his bodyguard and was next to Lincoln through the whole Civil War and saved his life more than once. But not uh, ultimately an ineffective bodyguard. Lamon, Lincoln sent Lamon away three days before the end. And had, Lam- had he not done that, he would not have been killed at Ford's Theater. Wow. To understand why Lincoln sent Lamon away you have to see Saving Lincoln. Oh, wow. Available at savinglincoln.com. Saving Lincoln. And, and then Spielberg wound up releasing his Lincoln film around that t- same time. Danny, Steven Spielberg could do anything. He's the most powerful filmmaker in the world. He had $100 million literally at his disposal. Uh-huh. And the Lincoln movie that he made is the following. The Civil War is over and Abraham Lincoln wants to get a law passed in Congress. Our movie. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln leads the nation through the Civil War, <laughs> through its darkest hours and his own, as seen through the eyes of his closest friend uh-huh. who saved his life more than once. I mean, he should have used our script. He really did. You uh, ever meet him? <laughs> no, I've not met him. Nina did. She ran into him at a restaurant and told him about our movie. And he said, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> I would have thought, you know, with your ambition, you would have you would have went and suck out, or how do you say, seek out? We did, we did, Link, we did. No, 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 uh, Spielberg. No, there was a. We were kept away from him. Like it was very purposeful that they would not look at our script. Steven Spielberg was uh, when he made that movie Amistad. There was a big, big lawsuit that you know somebody had submitted a similar project to his company, and then they made that movie. Uh, uh, and then they were sued about it. So, so they can't would never even look, look at, at anything that was remotely similar to something that they right. might do someday. <laughs> Don't look at this. <laughs> that might be a funny movie where you got to just get him to look at it. So that way, you know, he's not going <laughs> to drop that. All right. I feel like uh, I'm, I'm warmed up and, and ready to get into this philosophy. How about you? Absolutely. I'm fascinated to see who my philosopher is going to be. All right. Well, uh, the, the philosopher that Alex picked out for you is Adam Ferguson. Have you heard of him? I've never even heard of this guy. No? No. Oh, good. I'm excited because <laughs> as we were talking, I'm thinking, oh, he probably knows all the philosophers. Uh, I don't know him either, but. Adam Ferguson. I'm just not philosophically literate, I guess. He says, the reason why he picked Adam Ferguson for you is because Salvador has so many college degrees that he picked a philosopher who talks about striving for excellence. Okay. I think that uh, striving for excellence has been a big uh, theme throughout this whole talk. So I think it's, so far I feel he nailed it. Okay. Um, how many, striving for excellence. How many is, is he like, a, maybe Ferguson, is, a, is he a, like a college basketball coach? <laughs> <laughs> He always tells everybody, strive for excellence. Get <laughs> out there. And give this is it coming up. <laughs> How many college degrees do you have? Just three. That's a lot. It's two, <laughs> two more than me. Okay. <laughs> All right. So here's a little bit about Adam Ferguson. Adam Ferguson, uh, Scottish. Uh, the name is Gaelic. Adam 
Ferguson. 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 Also known as Ferguson of Wraith, lived from June 20th, 1723 till February 22nd, 1816. All right. And he was a Scottish philosopher, historian. And, and a golfer, I think. <laughs> <laughs> he must have. He must have done a little bit, right? Right. Um, and uh, when was golf invented? Do you know? I don't know, but it's and I probably, ought to know because I'm a bit of a golf addict. Yeah, it must have been around by by at least by 18. I think yeah, I think it was right? around. Yeah, yeah. The old course at St Andrews. Have you been there? No, I want to go. I've been there, but really? I, I didn't play. But I went and visited it. I don't know. I I, I haven't. I want to learn golf. Would you teach me golf? I can teach you golf. Yeah, yeah. I should I should play golf. I, my mom is uh, born in Glasgow, and my my grandfather and great grandfather and uh, going back for over a hundred years, the Scottish Jews. Yeah. I should be, I should be golfing. Absolutely. All right. Anyway, that's that's neither here nor there. But he he was a um, did I say he was a Scottish philosopher of the historian and the Scottish Enlightenment. Ferguson was sympathetic to traditional societies such as the Highlands for producing courage and loyalty. He criticized commercial society as making men weak, dishonorable, and unconcerned for their community. Ferguson has been called the father of modern sociology for his contributions to the early development of the discipline. His most well-known work is his essay on the history of civil society. So that tells you a little bit about him. And so he said he said that commercial society makes people uncivil. Is that right? Yeah, he said I think he said makes people men weak. Weak. Yeah. That's some real harsh Scottish uh right? makes men weak. So this pursuing business pursu- makes them weak. But rather what I guess strength for him is being civil to people. The the strong man is kind. Right. Okay. Huh. Yeah, weak, dishonorable, and unconcerned for their community. Unconcerned for their community, I guess, because they're trying to take advantage of their community. Because they're they're, they're because selfish, they're to, right? They're, yeah. they're they're about themselves and making a buck and yeah. making a bigger house. So huh. they don't care about the neighbor. I guess that's what he's saying. Should I read on, or do you want to? Sure. Okay. Born at I don't know how to pronounce this. Lod Lodgeriet. In Athol, Perthshire, Scotland, the son of Reverend Adam Ferguson. It's easier to read Scottish words with a Scottish brogue, you know? Right, yeah. He received his education. And by the way, brogue, is that only referred to Scottish? Because we don't have an American brogue. I think so, laddie. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a good American. I never heard anyone say that's a great American brogue, you know? I, I, I think it means Scottish accent. Yeah, yeah for sure. Right? Yeah. I never heard anyone say, what a good Japanese bro. <laughs> you know who was Scottish and had a thick brogue? It was uh, Pinkerton, Alan Pinkerton. It was uh, originally in charge of Lincoln's security. He's huh. a character in our movie. That's why we learned about him. I got to see this movie. Mm-hmm. He received his education at Lodgeret Parish School and Perth Grammar School at the University of Edinburgh and the University of St. Andrews. In 1745, owing his knowledge of Gaelic, he gained appointments as deputy chaplain of the 43rd Regiment. The license to preach being granted to him by a special dispension, although he had not completed the required six years of theological study. 
See, it does really flow a lot better with it. So, so I'm just getting this. So, so you had to go to the university and you had to know Gaelic in order to be a preacher, but you could also be a soldier. So soldier, preacher, kind I think, of parallel tracks, sort of like filmmaker, lawyer. Yeah. Okay. Um, after residing in Leipzig for a time, he returned to Edinburgh, where in January of 1757, he succeeded David Hume as librarian to the Faculty of Advocates, but soon relinquished the office on becoming tutor in the family of Earl of Butte. In 1759, Ferguson became professor of natural philosophy at the University of Edinburgh and in 1764 transferred to the chair of, um, what is this, pneumatics, mental philosophy, and moral philosophy. In 1767, he published his essay on the history of civil society, which was well-received and translated into several European languages. In the mid-1770s, he traveled again to the continent and met uh, Voltaire, his membership of the poker club is recorded in its minute book of 1776. So he played poker with other philosophers. I don't know if that's <laughs> what that means. What is the poker club? Let's take a look. The poker club was one of several clubs at the heart of the Scottish Enlightenment, where many associated with that movement met and exchanged views in a convivial atmosphere. What's a convivial? You, that's a word. Friendly. Okay. Yeah. I've never heard that word. That's a, that's like, a Harvard uh, word. Like like vivial is like from viva, uh -huh. right? So they're like dwelling together and so co dwelling. We're, we're in a convivial atmosphere. Very. Right this is very this, convivial. This is great. Uh. I didn't even know I was in a convivial. See, you're you know you're a very convivial guy. <laughs> I like that. I want to start using that. Just drop that into a conversation. <laughs> the poker club was created in 1762 out of the ashes of the secret society. Adam Smith said, uh, divided councils and diminished zeal supply, no doubt, the main reason for the decay of the poker club. But he also mentioned the rising costs to members. So it just became expensive. Yeah, because so it was no they, longer They, they were degenerate gamblers. That's what they were. <laughs> <laughs> Get together to talk philosophy and play high stakes poker. <laughs> and if you guys won all the money, <laughs> everyone else gave up their membership. Yeah, David Hume walked home with all the money and all the <laughs> finances, next philosophy book. And then Adam Smith, he's the guy with the invisible hand, right? Mm -hmm. Of the, uh, the invisible hand of the free market. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, the invisible hand was the one that went into his pocket at the <laughs> poker club. <laughs> Uh, this is humor that, that only would work on this show. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe in just some very, you know, elitist groups of philosophy snobs. But, sure. but it's, it, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, where else do you use invisible hand humor? <laughs> you know, uh, were there any secret societies uh, that you were a part of in the Harvard campus? I know that that's like a, a famed thing. So, so, okay, so the, uh, there weren't really secret societies like they are at Yale. At Harvard, it was, they were out in the open about it. They were, they were called mm -hmm. final clubs, and they were created about 1900, like when my people were arriving from the old Jewish world into Chile, Jews were starting to be allowed into Harvard. I mean, a little bit greater numbers than like the token one or two Jews that had gone in before. And the, uh, you know, the old Brahmin wasps, Oh, there's Jews coming here. Next, there'll be blacks coming here. 
and they kind of wanted to create like a refuge where they could be, you know, protected from from refuse like us, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and so they formed these final clubs uh, where you know they were like male. Well, Harvard was male only at that time, but they were like really elitist, super elitist. They were just for like old money people, and mm-hmm. um, and they would you know form the networks that they would you know lead them to become the next generation of elitist rich guys. And uh, they opened up more than that. By the time I was there, they were just kind of more social clubs. Um, and I think like 10% of the men at Harvard were, belonged to final clubs. Uh, and a lot of my friends were in it from the rowing team, but I wasn't. Of course, you, they had to sit around and talk about why is Sal here? <laughs> <laughs> Here's Alex's synopsis on Adam Ferguson. He says, Ferguson says that people are designed to strive for perfection in their morality. Natural selection is a difficult process to survive, and only the excellent do so. The fact that we have civilization is evidence of our progress as a species from pure self-interest to laws and intelligence. We can deduce that this progress will continue. We do not achieve greatness because we plan to. Our instincts built by natural selection are designed to help us progress even if we do not mean to. Human beings are engineered by nature towards progress. All right. Let's unpack that a little bit. Yeah. Um, and he said a couple interesting things there. He said, okay, so, so in our ancient natural state, we're just driven to to survive and and to further ourselves, right? Like like mm-hmm. my family has. To, if there's only enough food for your family and my family, then I'm going to kill you so that my family eats and to hell with yours. Mm-hmm. But that as a species we mature, I start to think it's not good for my family to survive at the expense of yours. I have to find a way for both our families to survive, mm-hmm. right? And, th- and he's saying that that's built into, I guess, the human, he, would, he wouldn't have said DNA, but it, like some, something essentially human is this uh, striving toward it, increased morality. But he also seemed to imply that, that morality goes with intelligence, right? Did, did I hear something like that? Yeah, he said, as a species from pure self-interest to laws and intelligence. Yeah. You know, recently I, I heard a thinker say, or I read, I read somewhere that that great intelligence does not necessarily go with great morality. That there are many intelligent people in the world that are completely immoral, um, and their intelligence may even hurt them because they convince themselves that they're moral mm-hmm. through the backflips that their intelligence is capable of but they're actually not benefiting the world and they're just doing what serves them while patting themselves on the back for being so moral. So I think that's the danger of tying morality and intelligence together. They're, they're not the same thing and they right. don't necessarily travel together. Yeah, I used to try, when I was coming back to um, observing Judaism and I was really in this like weird... Uh, questioning state where I just I was my wife was converting to Judaism I wasn't sure like you know she how much of this was being pressured from you know 
wanting to marry into my family or or just wanting to belong to something, to belong to a community. And I, and I was like, I, I don't want to get sucked back into Judaism again. The first time it was so hard for me to leave. And then I was in this, uh, I was in this, this whole state of trying to figure out um, what's real, you know, or I knew so many intelligent atheists, uh, you know, brilliant people. And then I knew a lot of very intelligent uh, religious people. And I was like, well, how are they both so intelligent and uh, coming to such different conclusions? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it's obviously not, this is obviously not an intelligence-based thing because I knew like a brain surgeon who was also a rabbi. And I knew, you know, these amazing professors who would who would laugh at the idea of, of religion and God. And I was like, it doesn't make sense. This is like the one place where, you know, smart people are, are really coming to very different, because, uh, you know, either like, you know, God is like, you know, if he's not real, then how are these people so intelligent and, and believing in like a dragon, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, I, I started to explore, was it coming? Well, now you're talking a little bit about the, the, the connection between morality and divinity, which right. is itself, I mean, that's a whole other conversation. Well, that was, the, right? yeah, that's just, it just reminds me. Of but that, I mean, you, you know? can, the thing is, you know, you talk about really bright atheists, the thing about them is, if they're saying, first of all, no one can prove that God exists or doesn't exist. So to me, the atheist is is, is really wedded to a form of faith, and he won't call it faith. Mm-hmm. He'll say, no, I, I know there's no God because there's no evidence that there's God. It's not faith. It's just evidence-based. But you don't know there's no God. I get the agnostic. But the guy who says there is no God is making a claim that he yeah. can't prove. I mean, that, that, that's a Just kind as of strong a conviction as saying there is a God. Right. But in the world that he lives in, uh, why shouldn't he do whatever he wants? Why doesn't might make right? You know, I mean, it makes you feel good that you take care of the helpless in society, but there's no other reason to do it. You know what I mean? And, and, uh, and you might think that a society is just gonna be a better society if it takes care of the powerless. Uh, but you know, the experiment, the big experiments in society that happened in the last century, I mean, it was communism, right? Where really intelligent people said, we're gonna make a perfect society where the most people are gonna be happy. And to get there, we'll do whatever it takes. And they ended up killing a hundred million people and create utter misery. And their whole system crashed and burned and did not work. And so even though they were super intelligent, uh, it was unmoored from morality or from any kind of eternal values. Uh, and, and they created a disaster and a hell on earth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've heard people say, well, all the wars of mankind were created by religion. Yeah, no, they weren't. The wars of mankind were created by selfish people uh, who wanted to pursue their own idea of how the world should be arranged and, and did so with blood in their eyes to get what they wanted. But you know, I think people who are really serving eternal values, you know, at, at least, okay, if they're going to do it out of the Judeo-Christian Muslim tradition, which all comes back from the Torah, right? I mm-hmm. mean, the three major religions do all share Abraham uh, and, and the Jewish tradition. And, you know, in that tradition, we certainly honor intelligence and the ability to study Torah deeply 
But we don't trust ourselves to decide, you know, what's right and what's moral. We trust a teaching that comes from beyond us. Uh, and what's, what, I, what I always find interesting in the society we live in, it's like it, it's, it's come to the place where it has such a bias. I mean, I'm talking now in, the, in culture, in media culture. The media culture is very anti-religious, mm-hmm. right? And it, it sort of creates this kind of feeling like, well, you know, the people who are into religion, they're, they're kind of dumb and kind of superstitious and easily manipulated. And they don't really know anything. They're just manipulated by their religious leaders who want money from them. Yeah. Right. And, and like you see that in, in, in kind of in the writing and in the comedy and, and, and you know, and in the popular culture. And then when you come out as somebody that really cares deeply about God and about your tradition, they kind of look at you like, uh, you know, you don't really know anything. You're an antiquated idiot. You're an antiquated idiot. Very yeah. good. And, uh, and, the, and, and so what they're trusting, in, 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 what they trust in, so that they can believe in this system, right? That secularism is, is, is the, the best ism, right? Is their intelligence. Their intelligence tells them what's right and wrong and that religion is antiquated, et cetera. But that intelligence is not leading them to be moral people. You know, and so many of them are just, you know, they're virtue, virtue signaling to each other that, hey, we're really good. We support the right causes. But do they actually like roll up their sleeves and go help people? You know, do they make it a, a business to give some, something of their own wealth every day, you know, in tzedakah to give charity? Do they, do they give with their feet and, and with their hands, you know, and, and go help people that need the help? Uh, because that's where morality really is. I mean, the Torah teaches like, you know, you're going to judge a society by how it takes care of the most needy. But taking care of the most needy does not mean, you know, arranging the whole society so that people, you know, who were out of power now get power. Mm-hmm. You know, what it means is that everyone has an equal opportunity. That's certainly a necessary. Uh, but then, you know, you pursue these eternal values uh, in society as a whole, and especially in your family. You know, so, I mean, if you're a dick to your kids and a dick to your wife, and I don't care what you believe in, you're a dick, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And this is an argument about John <laughs> Lennon that I keep winding uh, <laughs> What's that? Hearing people have just, you know, how he's saying about peace and how he's saying about love and how he's saying about, you know, power to the people and, and you know women feminism and all this but then people say it was horrible to his to his wife and he beat her and all and all this stuff uh, and uh, and you know i've had some people say i won't listen to john lennon anymore i go well you know i like it i like listening to john lennon but i don't you know i don't expect that he's he has necessarily emulated what he's saying about whereas i think you don't view him as a philosopher I mean, I don't know. I mean, he certainly had a had had philosophy. I doesn't. It doesn't mean he lived his philosophy. Okay. You know, the one I can't listen to anymore is Roger Waters. Yeah, I can't. I just can't. Yeah, I just, I, I just love Pink Floyd so much growing yeah. up, and and him, and respected him so much, and then he turned on Israel in the most vicious way. Man, yeah, I just that can't really hurts. To music. I still listen to it. I'll be honest. With you got to steal it. Just don't uh, just don't give him your dollar. You got Spotify now. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, 
Write a letter to Spotify and say you want whatever allocation of your nine ninety nine a month must not go to Roger Waters. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Anyway, huh. I, I think I took us off track with what you were saying with the John Lennon thing, but maybe not. I don't Let's know. get back to Ferguson. Yeah. <laughs> so we're talking about intelligence and morality. Now he's saying that that the human animal mm-hmm. is built to become more moral over time, right? I think so. I think that's what I got out of it. Um, I'd have to look at it again. I, I, I kind of believe that. You do? Yeah. I, I am an optimist. And I do believe we've become better at, at being humans. And, and the thing is, like, I think that n- nothing good ever happened without resistance. So for us to be making the progress that we're making, there has to be horrible things happening at the same time. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah. I mean, I do think that, I don't know, I, I, I think we've gotten better at, at, at living together, at humans at living together. And, and, and people suffer. I mean, there's no question. There's a lot of suffering going on in the world today. And, and we have the power you know, with our technology to make untold numbers suffer at the same time. I mean, you know, we have the atom bomb and we have all kinds of other terrible things. But, I mean, look, you know, look, look at America. I mean, I, the civil rights movement produced change, you know. Uh, I think people have more opportunity now than they did before. I think Jews have it really good in America. Uh, and I think a lot of other groups do too. I mean, I think that if you're willing to work hard, you may have more obstacles in your way than people from other groups, but you won't be kept out uh, of any profession. You know, it's possible. Uh, and I think that's promising. I think that we're getting better at, at at feeding people and having energy. This guy Buckminster Fuller that I was into in college, he was an interesting like mathematician philosopher. And he said, we have the resources right now to feed everyone on earth and actually only 10% of the people would have to do the work. And the other 90% would just have to stay out of trouble. <laughs> well, that would sort of be an argument against Ferguson then, right? Because if society was heading that way, we would have done it by now. But I think that having 90% of the people not busy would be disastrous. <laughs> you know? It's, it's going to happen with technology. I think I saw, they said 45% of jobs they project projected in the next um 20 years are going to disappear i don't know if that's an accurate you have to, i think people need meaning right i think people need meaning so maybe they don't have to be at work every day you know producing the widgets and potato chips and you know sliced bread and mm-hmm. cars that that other people need but they have to be doing something that is useful uh and not just standing around you know, and that's why like a depression or, you know, big unemployment is so, it's so harmful. Not, not, not just to society because people aren't eating, but because maybe you could, you know, create a welfare state where everybody has enough to eat. But if people don't feel like what they do each day is meaningful, they're going to get restless and, and you're going to get to a war, I think, pretty soon. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know that I agree with Ferguson that, you know, people engaging in commerce uh, is so harmful. I think that that drive toward a more civil society goes hand in hand with, you know, with work and with creating something that's meaningful. I guess the question I would have for you, right, for all of us is, 
if, if, if they could organize it all, like Buckminster Fuller said, so that we could all have to eat and to live in and to drive and you know have those basic needs met. And, and so like everybody had a lot of free time. What would we find to do that would give us meaning? Paint. I mean, I, I, I do definitely, we're artists, right? I mean, we're yeah. creative people, so we believe in that. Right. I think just give everybody brushes and paint. Well, I mean, that if you could create something that yeah. gives people joy uh, and that makes them think and et cetera, that, that, that creativity is absolutely meaningful in itself. Right. Um, if you're a religious person, I guess you would think worship, you know, would be something that would be meaningful to you. Um, entertainment i guess is sort of the same as creativity but if you're sort of not creative and you're not an entertainer and you're not religious and and your work is not needed i, I think that would get dangerous you i know, think everybody what, would revert to painting <laughs> you believe in it i really think so <laughs> <laughs> if you could get people past the um their inhibitions about it and their insecurities about being a bad painter. About being a bad painter. Yeah. Because everybody would be judgmental, right? If you tell them, like, all art is good art, you know? Nothing you do is bad. Just just pick up the brush and paint. You know, Hitler was a painter. Right. That's what that's what caused the Holocaust. That's what caused nobody the Holocaust. encouraged him. Nobody said this is good, you right. know? If people would have just... The art world is so cruel <laughs> that, so, that it produced Hitler. But wouldn't Hitler. everybody be cruel? Wouldn't everybody be cruel? If everybody was painting full time, 90% of the world was painting full time. Uh-huh. They get all judgmental about it, right? Well, you'd have to maintain a thing that all art is good art. No art is bad art. Everybody so, pat each other on the back. Everybody we gets support, a participation trophy. Yeah, support everybody's, you know, because ultimately you can't really define what is good art or what is bad art. It's so subjective anyway that you'd have to they, say they, every they, art is But they'd be trolling each other's Facebook pages and saying, <laughs> look how bad Sal's painting well, is. Well, then man. we degenerate again as a society. <laughs> Uh, all right, so I always ask the guests to read a paragraph and then, and then we go over some quotes. Uh, would you do the honor? All right. Every step of the multitude, even in enlightened ages, are made with blindness to the future. Nations stumble upon establishments, which are the result of human action, but not the execution of any human design. Man's progress is continued to a greater extent than in any other animal. Not only does the individual advance from infancy to manhood, but the species from rudeness to civilization. Hence, the departure of mankind from what he must have been in the first age of his being. All right, so this is the idea that the human enterprise is going somewhere. In a good direction. And in a good direction. He was in the 1800s in Scotland? So late 1700s yeah. and up to 1816, I think you said. I guess that was probably a good, yeah, it was the Scottish Enlightenment times. And we, yeah, so I they mean, felt like we're coming out of the dark ages. Yeah. We're developing machines that are changing the way we live. Yeah. Um, and they start to believe in it, right? And uh, I mean, look, I, I think that if you're a person of faith, this is like almost self-evident. You know, like, why did God create the, the, the human species and the human enterprise so that it would advance to something? Right. Not so that we would just beat each other over the head and cause untold suffering, but that, I, you know, it's moving towards something. There's a, there's a goal. Like fine wine getting better with time. 
Yeah. And hopefully not past its expiration date when it turns into vinegar. You know, like those bottles of wine that are like a million dollars. They're like 200 years old, you know, and like no one dares open it because it might have turned to vinegar. <laughs> or it might be that million dollar bottle. And which are we? <laughs> um, so, so for me, yeah, for sure. We are developing towards something. Uh, but it's totally unsmooth and we're not there yet. And there's probably, you know, God forbid, but tough days ahead. It's not like we're going to get anywhere perfect soon. Um, and he says that it kind of happens by accident. So he doesn't talk about the invisible hand, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I would say the invisible hand of, of God, you know, having a sense of that this is all moving towards something. But what happens if we are aware of it? I mean, if you and I are talking about this, well, then in some sense, the human species is aware of that movement. And I think, I don't know, if I, I guess if enough of us believe in it, that helps make it happen sooner. Yeah, but do you think we'd still feel the same way if we lived in shanty towns in, in Africa? Oh, that's a great question. Or during a war. Yeah. Or if we were in a concentration camp right now and people dying right and left. Mm-hmm. Uh -huh. Um, but that, that I only read it this year. It's such a classic book. Did you ever read uh, Victor Frankl? No. Man's Search for Meaning. So he was a, a psychologist and a bit of a philosopher who went through the concentration camps. He was there for like four years. I mean, just went through hell. But what he talks about is that what's always available to a person is to make meaning out of what's happening matter how bad it is, he can choose to make meaning out of it. And, uh, and, I, and I think that every time something terrible happens and people come together and you know make something happen that's good and that wouldn't have happened but for that first tragedy, then I, I think that's what's beautiful about mankind. Is that what Ferguson was saying? I, I think so. I think that that's, that thing, that's the beauty of mankind. You know, that, that's what's built into our bones, that we can make meaning out of, out of something no matter how horrible it is. Well, it's a beautiful sentiment anyway. And it's easy to say, you know, on a nice day in LA yeah. <laughs> in 2017, and if we were, you know, tested the way my grandfather was, the way that our ancestors were so many times. I mean, that Jew hatred is so old and, and, and our people have, have been made to suffer so many times. And yet, and, and to, our people have been made to suffer because they were Jews. So you would think at some point they might've said, what for? It's not worth it. If we just blend in with everybody else and forget this well, Jew that's, thing. That's what I was saying about, you know, how the Holocaust has really destroyed American Judaism. The ones who just say, I don't need it and, and assimilate yeah. completely. And just say, what for? Yeah. And yet, but that's nothing new, right? Like, like we've gone through things. The Holocaust was really bad, but it, it's not different than things that have happened to us. It's just greater. It's recent. It's recent, you know. But people went through the Inquisition and through the Crusades and through the pogroms and through the exiles and through the Roman destruction. I mean, it was bad in every age, right? We say to mm -hmm. Passover, in every age they rise up to destroy us. And I think the fact that the Jews are still here. Is testament to that people can make 
you know, meaning out of anything. Yeah. Um, and, and the Jews certainly aren't the only ones. You know, we don't have any monopoly on that. There are a lot of people in the world who are suffering and finding grace and meaning, uh, you know, in that darkness. Couldn't you just say that's a coping mechanism? I think it's a coping mechanism if all you do is say, yeah, it's not so bad. We'll get through. But people do more than that, right? Like they build movements, they build cities, they build new countries. Look at America. Now we'll see what happens to America. America is so young. You know, when, when you have the perspective of a, of a people that's 3,000 years old, ancient Israel, you know, the first temple stood for 400 years, almost twice as long as America has existed. And, and when America started, it was in the age of Ferguson, right? I mean, it just it's such a different world. And yet, America has really prospered because America was an answer to what had come before. I'm really you know, sort of, it's something I really care about because of, of the Lincoln movie. I was just in. thinking that. Yeah. yeah. Like we got really deep into Lincoln and then we really came to share um, his views on a lot of things. And one thing that was really important to Lincoln was that America was not only for Americans. Not meaning, and therefore we had to take in a lot of immigrants. Sure, people should be able to come to America. But what he meant was uh, the American experiment was a uh, it was a beacon to the world about what's possible you know it was it was it was a change from monarchy i mean for so many centuries the only successful governments were monarchies and here was the idea that that men and women could govern themselves in that time that men could govern themselves yeah but it became men and women could govern themselves and originally it was white men could govern themselves but it's become people of all colors and all genders, you know, can govern themselves. And that idea took hold, you know, which, which big country is run by monarchy now? You know, I mean, there's dictators, uh, but I don't think they're the majority. And the idea of democracy is spreading and spreading. It doesn't seem to work in some places, uh, but I think there's a faith that eventually it will. And, uh, and that's different. I mean, the world being run by democracies is fundamentally different than than the ancient world, even than the world that Ferguson lived in. Were there any things that you wound up finding very disappointing about Lincoln as you went through your research on the film? Honestly, I would say no. You, nobody ever has a bad word to say about him. I mean, he was certainly human, and, and weak uh, at times, and and you know he would be the first to tell you <laughs> that that he's a he's a common man of the commonest sort, uh-huh. um, you know, with no formal education. Oh, cool. Yeah, uh, yeah. that's a this is a comedy show, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think your show is successful, Danny, because I think people do care about big ideas. You think ideas. my show is successful? Sure, I think it's successful. <laughs> no, just... and, I think, and I think it is so because people yeah. do care about big ideas. I always have, I think you always have, and you probably find yourself getting into conversations with people of all different kinds and all yeah. different places. And they do care about big ideas. Let's get into those quotes. What do okay. you think? <laughs> we got three quotes. Number one, 
the forces of society arise before the date of philosophy from the instinct, not the speculations of men. Oh, 100%. Right? At the end of the day, people do what they want to do, not because they reason their way into it, but because some gut level is telling them what to do. Mm-hmm. And, and then I think they've probably adhere to a philosophy that justifies what they want to do anyway. Right. But that's where you have the distinction between intelligence and morality. The dangerous distinction. Yeah. 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 Like you were saying before, you, you know, you, you find, you know, a way to construct an intellectual path to, to morality that justifies your actions. Yes. Yeah. I mean, listen, those communists, I mean, like they really wanted to create a paradise on earth. They believed in it. They were sure that they were gonna bring much greater happiness to greater numbers. Uh, And then to get there, they created some of the greatest suffering that has ever been. The Nazis too, totally different thing, but they were gonna arrange a new society that was gonna be great. Like, I'm sure they thought they were heroes. You know, I don't think a Nazi thought he was evil, right? Even well, maybe a Nazi thought he was evil. <laughs> yeah, but, right, I, but I know what you mean. I don't right? think Hitler thought he was evil. He probably thought he was the most courageous person ever to you know do what had to be done to get yeah. this you know new vision of the world in place. Um, but that new vision, I think the instinct that they were really following was, I know better. Right? I know better, mm-hmm. and. I know better is really little more than I should be in charge, right? And like the way that I'm gonna get in charge and stay in charge is by selling some vision that we have to get to. All right, well, I think, uh, what do we have, two more quotes? Yeah. The progress of man is not to be considered a physical mutation of the species. Darwin, I think, was a little later, right? I'm I'm not quite sure when Darwin was. Um, but what I'm getting at, from at this, this at this point, you're saying Darwin was still an ape. <laughs> still an ape. Like, like, like they didn't have this idea. I, I don't know whether Ferguson lived in a world where they had this idea that species evolve into other species. Mm-hmm. But what I'm thinking he's saying is that is is that man will progress in a fundamental way that doesn't mean he's gonna turn physically into something else, but that, but arranging his affairs in a way that's so different than the way it is now, it will be as, uh, you know, as distinctive and as substantial a change as to go from ape to man. You know, to go from mm-hmm. ape to man is as big a change as to go from, you know, dangerous, uncivilized man to civilized man. Okay, that that's it. I don't understand it any better than that, so I'll go with that. (laughs) Let's go with that. All right, here's the final quote. Men are to be estimated not from what they know, but from what they are able to perform. Uh, That sounds like Pierre Cavot, right? That, that, uh, that, That study is important, but study that is not accompanied by deeds is not real study. Right. So we can talk all day uh, about how civilization should be run, but if we're not willing to get in that soup kitchen, mm-hmm. if we're not willing to give up a part of our income. Back to what day, you were saying before between 
the difference between people who are intellectually moral or 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 are basing their morality on on action yeah. things that make them get up and like you said give with their hands and their feet give with their hands and their feet and and well and then where it gets the most dangerous Danny I think is is when like sometimes you have to fight right there is evil in the world and sometimes giving with your hands and your feet is picking up a gun or an umbrella e- or an umbrella <laughs> and fighting evil and oh my god you have to be so careful when you think that you're going to be kind by killing i think you're so likely to be wrong you know that that the you know i think civilized man has to put up so many obstacles you know like you have to you know you have to get approval from every department before before you can prove that it's the the right idea to go kill someone yeah to be kind but i i do think that there's a project like ferguson says that mankind is advancing in a direction so i'm with him on that all right <laughs> well that's a cool and thank you for teaching me about ferguson that i never heard of before yeah i mean i learned as you did so uh it's a good optimistic note to end on and uh, thanks so much for doing the show. It's really been fun. Thank yeah. you for having me, Dan. Thank you, everybody. Thanks so much for those of you who wrote in and sent me well wishes. I really appreciate it. If you want to write in, you can by all means write to me at thecomical at yahoo.com. I would love to hear from you. Please, if you have some time, jump on the iTunes and leave five stars and a nice comment. It would help. And once again... Go and check out fairenoughcomic.com and pick up the new issue of Fair Enough, Fair Enough 2, with art by Josh Meatbag Mead, brought to you by Stand Up Records, the brand you know, the brand you love. Go to standuprecords.com because they are supporting me still and now sponsoring these comic books for me to to get them out there. And you can buy one at fairenoughcomic.com, and I'm really proud of it. I hope that you will enjoy it. Thanks again to Salvador Litvak. Thank you guys for tuning in. And I'll see you guys next time with another exciting and jam-packed episode of Modern Day Philosophers. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye now.